Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. I still can't believe it's, it's 2020. I mean, I, to me, the year 2020, I probably haven't felt this way since the year 2000. I mean, the year 2020 to me uh, is, has always sounded like science fiction. Uh, but here we are. Maybe you're like me when, when a year turns, you begin to feel reflective over the year that has just passed. But I can tell you, I, I don't know if you're like me, but when a decade turns, it makes you even that much more reflective over the past 10 years. And I want to just pause here at the beginning of my sermon here this morning just to, to give God glory for His faithfulness. I don't know about you, but as you've looked back over the past year, past 10 years of your life, uh, I just am, am awestruck at God's goodness, His faithfulness to me. Um, His transforming work in my life. When I look back 10 years, I am not the same man I was 10 years ago. And that only by His grace. And I imagine many of you could stand up and say this morning something very similar, give a similar testimony of God's faithfulness. Even at points when we have been faithless, He has been faithful. And so as you look back on the past... What changes do you want to make? As you, as you look back on the year past, the decade past, do you see bad habits that you want to curb? Do you see goals that, that went unmet? Do you see broken relationships that you wish to mend or priorities that were misplaced? What about as you look ahead to the future? What, what challenges do you see on the horizon in your life? Do you anticipate a health struggle in the coming year? Do you see financial hardship on the horizon or relational turmoil or busyness or a major new undertaking or or just a general anxiety about the future? I think this time of year provides for us, unlike any other time of the year, uh, a, a time for reflecting on our lives and giving glory to God and thanks to God for all that He has done, but also taking stock of our lives and and looking and planning and seeing how we can make changes in our life. You know, on the the one hand, some of us are are making plans and resolutions. You know, I'm going to get fit this year. I'm going to eat better, read more, watch less TV, sleep more get those projects done, be more productive, whatever the case may be, we're making all these resolutions. On the other hand, some of us, we're just coasting, right? We we think, oh man, another year, why reflect on change? I, I am who I am, why try to change now? I think in reality, most of us are somewhere between those two extremes, aren't we? 
no matter where you are on that spectrum of seeking change in your own life, I, I want you to hear clearly this morning from the outset of this new year, from the outset of this new decade in your life, I want you to hear God's call from His Word to change. My goal this morning is that you would see that your greatest need today for this coming year is God's grace. Your greatest need this year, above and beyond any resolution that you can make in your own, <laughs> in your own plans, is a need for repentance. We need to, to seek repentance before we seek resolution. Let me show you what I mean from God's Word here. It's kind of my big idea for this morning. Merely worldly resolve is not enough for your year or your decade ahead. And the book of James really gives us a couple of reasons for this. One, the first reason here is that your mind is naturally worldly. Your mind is naturally worldly. This actually takes place at the end of James chapter 3 here. We didn't read this yet this morning. But James asks here in James chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? You know, when you face circumstances in your life, you apply to those circumstances whatever wisdom that you have managed to glean throughout your life, don't you? Come have a difficult circumstance in your life and you reach within and you pull out what nuggets of wisdom that you've gained and you seek to apply that to your life to get you through that circumstance. Well, James asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? You know, if you ask a group of people, even in here this morning, but let alone out in the world, who is really wise? You're going to get just a, a wide spectrum of answers on that, aren't you? wide variety of who has really got the wisdom well, James tells us that there are two diametrically different wisdoms in this world to choose from. There's worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. He says here in this text, in this very first verse here, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words... Let him who is wise show it in wisdom's fruits. True wisdom can be evaluated by what it produces in someone's life. Can it? True wisdom can be looked at and it can see how it works out in someone's life. And what are the fruits of worldly wisdom here? James tells us that there are two chief fruits. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy and selfish amb ambition. James says this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not godly wisdom, but rather it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and he even says it is demonic. There's a certain wisdom that the world has to offer. There's a certain wisdom that the world has to offer that might seem wise, but... James says it is only of this world, it, and it is downright 
demonic. And then in, in verse 16, he says this, that where you have jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Proverbs 16.25 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Those whom James is writing to in this letter, he's writing to a group of Christians, they were being divided. And they were being divided by those who seemed to be wise. But in reality, they were only stirring up bitterness and division in the pursuit of their own selfish ends. They should have been able to discern that those who were being divisive in this way and stirring up bitter jealousy were only drawing upon worldly wisdom. Seems so clear, doesn't it? When, when you read it in the onion skin pages of your Bible, it just seems so clear, right? Of course, there's only two ways. There's the worldly wisdom, there's the godly wisdom. Let me tell you, when it's when, when there's a situation in your life, it is oftentimes very, very difficult to discern which person to listen to, which path to take, and where true, true wisdom, wisdom lies. How seductive is worldly wisdom in a real-life circumstance? And how natural is it to simply react in the way that makes sense to you. Don't we all do this? Well, why did you do that? Well, it just made sense to me. <laughs> right? We draw upon our own natural sense of right and wrong, our own natural sense of what is best. How easy it is to, to face your difficulties with mere earthly resolve. But be careful. What feels right what seems wise may actually be leading you down the wrong path. You know, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, John tells an often overlooked story from the life of Jesus. It's about when Jesus' brothers came to him to give him some advice. You should go back and read this story later if you get a chance. I'm going to paraphrase for you what the brothers said to Jesus. They come to Jesus and they said, Hey, Jesus, why are you doing these miracles so secretly here in Galilee? If you want to make something of yourself, then you ought to reveal yourself to the world. Go up to the feast. Go up to Judea and Jerusalem and show the world who you are. Might seem like good advice. This was Jesus' brothers, which by the way, probably included James. Did you know that the letter that we're studying this morning, the book of James, is written by the Lord's brother by that name? And in John chapter 7, John tells us that at this time when the brothers came to him and gave him this advice that not even his brothers believed in him. Bitter jealousy, right? It was worldly wisdom. This advice that came from his own brothers, probably even from James, who at the time didn't believe in him. This was worldly advice and it, seemed, it, it might have seemed to make so much sense. But this advice was worldly. It was according to the principles of this world and how messiahs and kings ought to take the throne. 
But Jesus was operating under a different kind of wisdom, wasn't he? Jesus was operating according to the principles of his Father in heaven. Godly wisdom. And so he responded to his taunting brothers with, with simply saying, my time has not yet come. The world says, press your advantage. Seek your own glory. Do what you must do to get your own way. But how puzzling is Jesus to our own worldly wisdom. He was to be a crucified Messiah. He was quick to rush to the lowest place, even though all things belonged to Him. And so this is why I say and why James writes here in this letter that mere worldly resolve is not enough for your year or your decade ahead because your mind is naturally worldly. You can't just rely upon what makes sense to you for your coming year. Secondly, James tells us that your heart is naturally unfaithful. Those to whom James was writing were experiencing various quarrels and fights. James is asking the question here in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he immediately identifies the cause. He says, it's your passions. In the Greek, it's the word hedone. You might hear in that the English word hedonism, right? These are passions. These aren't just any passions, but they're selfish passions. It's your passions which are at war within you. And then James goes on to describe the inner conflict as hedonistic fleshly desires are frustrated. And then we act out in conflict, even violence, if left unchecked, if we don't get what we want. That's the way our heart is naturally bent. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. It says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James puts his finger right on an issue here. He says it's a lack of prayer. You're trying to grasp, your, your heart is, is, is naturally unfaithful. It's grasping after what you desire and you're not even turning to God to ask for the things that you need or want. And he says, even if you did pray about it, you were praying with the wrong motives. And James then goes on to call them adulteresses. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Literally there, that's the Greek word. It's a feminine word. It's the, he calls them adulteresses. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, in the Old Testament, God often likens his covenant with his people to a marriage covenant where God is the husband and his people are the bride. 
And in this sense, James calls these Christians adulteresses. And he charges them with spiritual infidelity and unfaithfulness. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So if you wish to be friends with the world, then you are making yourself an enemy of God. You can't embrace both the world and its passions and God. You must choose. Look at verse 5. He goes on, he says, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is not a, a direct quote of any known Scripture here, but it really is a sort of summary of what many Scriptures teach. And that's this. That God is a righteously jealous God for His people. I was reminded of the, the power of jealousy just yesterday. I received out of the blue a text message from a woman I didn't know. And this woman, she had the wrong number, but she was sure that she knew who I was. She thought that my name was Terry, and she was furious at me for apparently hitting on her boyfriend or husband. I'm not sure who. At first, I, I didn't reply to the text, hoping that she would just figure out she had the wrong number and leave me alone. But a little while later, she, she called me. I didn't, I didn't pick up the phone. Uh, I opted instead to text her back. I said, quote, I have no idea who you are. You've got the wrong number. She immediately fired back. I got the right number. You just called him. Don't play no games with me. You know, being mistaken for someone else was, was kind of funny, but, but in reality, my heart goes out to this woman. I mean, it sounds like she was being cheated on. Jealousy is wrong if you are jealous for something that's not yours. And jealousy can lead you to lash out at other people in a sinful way. But listen carefully here. Jealousy itself is not inherently sinful because the scriptures tell us that God is jealous for his people. Jealousy is not inherently sinful. It is actually a good thing and not a sinful thing to be jealous for someone who is yours, right? So if someone was flirting with my wife and trying to seduce her in some way, and it didn't bother me, that would be wrong, right? It is right, and it is good to be jealous for someone who is yours, rightfully yours. And it is right to be jealous for the faithfulness of your spouse, God's jealousy over his people is a righteous and holy jealousy because we belong to him. We've been purchased by his son's blood. And he's not going to stand idly by while we embrace another lover. And so James is here writing to a bunch of Christians whose worldly wisdom set on fire by their worldly passions was wreaking havoc on their community. And this is the kind of thing that can happen to any of us, 
isn't it? To any church. Something that can happen to any of us, especially if we rely merely on what comes naturally to us. Worldly wisdom. Fleshly passions. And and that's why I say that mere worldly resolve is not enough for your year ahead. You can't just resolve to fix your own life. You need a changed mind and heart through repentance. Let's talk about those one at a time here. First, a changed mind. James wisely instructs us that there is wisdom available from above. Rather than exegeting each one of these words in this passage, I just want you to taste and see that godly wisdom is good. James says that there is a meekness or a humility that marks godly wisdom. Isn't isn't it just so attractive, that meekness of godly wisdom? And and James says in verse 17 of chapter 3 that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Can you t- just taste it and see that it is so good? Especially in contrast to worldly wisdom, which tastes like bitterness. James says earlier in his letter that if you want this kind of wisdom, all you have to do is ask. It's the good news. Right? James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. You know, God is not stingy and miserly when it comes to wisdom, but you do need to ask him for it. You need to ask him for it in faith. Whatever circumstance you're facing in your life right now, have you stopped to ask God for wisdom about it? Have you stopped to ask Him for wisdom in faith? Or are you merely relying upon your own earthly wisdom for what makes sense to you? Proverbs chapter 2 exhorts us to, to make our ear attentive to wisdom and incline our hearts to understanding. It says, call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. That's who you should seek. Seek God's face because from His mouth In his presence comes real wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You have no greater need to face your circumstance this year than to have the wisdom that comes from above. But that's not all. You also need a changed heart. You need a changed heart. James had said that the the Christians he was writing to were behaving like adulteresses, provoking God to jealousy, And they were acting like friends of the world and they were acting like enemies of God. 
I love this verse. As he turns the corner here in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says this. After, after leveling that, that really troubling charge, I mean, if someone came to you and, and called you an adulteress, called you an enemy of God, how would that make you feel? James then turns the corner here in, in verse 6 of chapter 4 and he says this, but he gives more grace. Isn't that good news? He gives more grace. And that word more there is the word uh, just simply means greater grace. His grace is greater than all of of our worldly wisdom. It is greater than all of our worldly passions, greater than our hearts that are so prone to stray. I love how one commentator, Rob Plummer, said it. He said, God's demand for perfection can sometimes feel overwhelming and unattainable to his sin-stained followers in a broken world. How wonderful then that God's grace is sufficient for his people's many stumblings. The fiery, consuming jealousy of God is only outdone by his gracious kindness and favor. Amen? Amen. James goes on in verse 7 to apply to the lives of, of those he's writing to what to me is a rather obscure proverb. Proverbs chapter 334, you know, it's not one of those proverbs like Proverbs 3, earlier in Proverbs 3, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean on your own understanding. It's a really well-known proverb to me. But Proverbs 3.34, James quotes here, and it says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Such a simple proverb. Such a, a simple saying, and yet James takes it up here and applies it to the lives of these believers and gives them hope. By the way, I noticed that one other New Testament reader also took up this obscure proverb. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 takes up the exact same proverb and quotes it. I conclude from this that it must have been a significant proverb in the early church. And the more I reflect on this proverb, the more I realize that it really is a proverb that summarizes so well many of Jesus' own teachings and his own example. This principle here that God opposes the proud and yet he gives grace to the humble is so simple and yet it is so counter our natural wisdom and our natural passions in life. And it sounds out here in this text as good news to weary sinners. All we need to do is repent. All we need to do is submit ourselves to God. And He will show us grace. I take all of these commands here. James then fires off about nine or ten rapid-fire commandments. He says, submit yourself to God, therefore. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a promise. It's a command with a promise. 
Resist him. He will flee. I love this next one. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. What a promise. We're like the the prodigal son that we, we so often stray and squander our inheritance, and yet we know that God welcomes us back. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. You say, but my hands are stained and my heart is vile. James says, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. There's a provision for that. The precious flow of the blood of Jesus. James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. True repentance springs from a godly sorrow over sin. Don't just sweep your sins under the rug and rush right into rejoicing. Mourn over your sin. Be broken over your sin in God's presence. Those who mourn now over sin will not mourn later over sin's consequences. Jesus taught that. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And James summarizes all these things with this final command in in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He will exalt you. The way up is not like worldly wisdom and passions to take yourself up. The way up is to go low, to humble yourself and to let God lift you up in His time and in His way. Your greatest need this year and in the decade to come is to draw near to God first in repentance. Your greatest need is to receive His friendship, His grace, His renewal, His cleansing, His strength. Let your repentance precede and guide your resolution for the year and the decade ahead. Let me, let me tell you, if you've never humbled yourself before God, you've never ever done that. Never humbled yourself before God and confessed your sins to Him. You've just heard some wonderful promises in God's Word that God has made a way for you to cleanse your hands and to purify your hearts. And it doesn't come from you doing good things to erase those things. It comes by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ who, who was crucified on the cross. He shed his blood for you to cover your sins, to cover the penalty for your sins. And he was buried. He suffered your punishment all the way to death. Tasted of it for three days in the grave and he rose again on the third day to newness of life. If you humble yourself before the Lord, He will lift you up. And if you've never done that, what a way to start the decade. (laughs) God offers you salvation if you will humble yourself before Him. Have you tried and tried and tried to change yourself, but you still sit in darkness? Perhaps it's time to consider 
repentance. You know, the greatest plan that anyone can make for the coming year is to plan to intentionally spend time each morning humbling yourself before God and drawing near to Him. So let me challenge you again, church, this morning to do just that. If you make no other resolutions for the coming year, plan to read your Bible and to pray. Read the Word of God. Read it in large chunks for familiarity. How can you be, how can you be changed by something you're not even familiar with? Read God's words for familiarity. Sometimes that means plowing through stuff you don't understand as you're reading it. It takes a lifetime of reading God's word, and you, every time you read it, you, you pick up more and more. So just keep reading it. Don't give up. I brought with me this morning a stack of uh, Bible reading plans to read through the Bible in a year. They're out, out there in the foyer. But I got it from this website here, www.5daybiblereading.com. It's a read through the Bible in a year program. It's one that I like. Uh, but there are many of them out there. And uh, let me just tell you, I'm not really a Bible in read through the Bible in a year person. I'm more like a read through the Bible in a year and a half person. I don't know, maybe you're like me. I find that a year and a half to two years is just about right for me. But don't get discouraged. You should read through the Bible from cover to cover for familiarity. But also let me encourage you to read it for intimacy. That means things like slowing down and going deep and studying it and meditating upon it and even memorizing it. I wish I could preach a whole sermon on this this morning, but um, let me just encourage you with a, a resource. You know, Scripture meditation and memorization is where you're going to find the real meat and potatoes. It's where you're going to find the real nourishment from God's Word. And So let me commend you a resource that, that has been a blessing to me for many years. It's a little booklet you can get as an e-book uh, through Kindle, your Kindle or whatever. For 99 cents, it's called An Approach to Extended memory, Memorization of the Scripture. If you've never... Uh, you've wondered how to best tackle memorizing, what's a good method for doing it, this little booklet gives you just a great plan for doing that. And I would commend it to you. So read your Bible. Read it for familiarity. Read it for intimacy. Memorize it. Meditate on it. And let it soak deep into your soul. And also, please, plan to pray. Pray every morning throughout your day. Um, I would encourage you especially to to seek undistracted prayer time. I often multitask, pray while I'm driving, pray while I'm running, pray when I'm doing this, that, or the other thing, doing dishes. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like monotasking when it comes to prayer. Completely turning your phone off, setting it away from you, shutting the TV off, shutting the radio off, not doing something else, but just getting alone with God and praying. Pray at home by yourself with the Lord. Talk to Him. Listen to Him. And also pray with us corporately. We have monthly prayer meetings that I would just encourage you, can, couldn't encourage you enough to come to on 
once a month. Uh, we're going to have our next one on the third Sunday of this month. I just encourage you to come out and pray with God's people. and Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. Mere worldly resolve is not enough to face your year or your decade ahead. You need a changed mind and heart. And that can only come when you submit yourself to Him each day. Let's put repentance before resolution. Let's pray.